Jesus, you are the chief cornerstone. You are our firm foundation. You are the one in which our hope is founded upon. You are the one in which our trust is built upon. And you are building your church, a powerful church in which the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. You are forming us into a new temple for your spirit to live and dwell inside. We thank you for the truth of that. We thank you that you are doing a good thing in us, but you are doing a good thing through us. We honor you. We love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, GT family. It is so good to be with you once again, bringing the word of God to you this morning in week two of our Book of Acts series, looking at the mission of the church. We hope that many of you were able to join us this past Wednesday for our time of just worship, the Psalms, and prayer, believing that you were refreshed in that midweek kind of pick-me-up. We're looking forward to doing that again this upcoming Wednesday. Well, I want to get right into the Word here this morning and really look at an important chapter in the book of Acts, a very formative chapter, especially for us as Spirit-filled believers, and uh, just really derive some things out of the text here today that will hopefully build us up, encourage us in our faith, and just kind of propel us into what it means to live life on mission. Now, by way of review, last week we started off this series by looking at Acts 1 and how the disciples asked Jesus a question. Jesus has just defeated death, hell, and the grave, and they want to know, is he going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Is he going to make Israel prominent at this time? And Jesus responds by telling them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Spirit comes, it will be like the baptism of John in which they were submersed in water. But instead of being submersed in water, they're now going to be submersed in the very Spirit of Jesus. And when this happens, they will be empowered to proclaim with boldness the resurrection, the gospel news that Jesus is Lord, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, but now they're going to proclaim it to Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. If you remember from last week, we talked about this idea that what God does in us, He always desires to do through us. And this was the problem with Israel in the Old Testament, is that they failed in their vocation and understanding what God was doing to bring blessing to them was to bring healing to the nations of the earth. And we always have to guard our hearts to make sure that when God is blessing us, when God is doing something special in us, it's not just about us but it's always about what he wants to do through us. So the disciples do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. They go back and they hang out in an upper room with many people, and they begin to gather, and they just begin to wait for the promise of the Spirit to come. And we talked about that big takeaway last week, that in the process of waiting, how God is preparing us, but he's also preparing others. He's preparing us to use us, but he's also bringing people into the scene in which he can bring his good news and his kingdom of heaven into their lives as well. It was during this time that the nations of the Europe, people from all around the world, are flocking to Jerusalem uh, to participate in the Feast of Pentecost, and they are going to hear the gospel good news of the kingdom in their own native tongues. And that brings us into Acts chapter 2 here this morning. I want to start off with this quote by John Stott. He says this, There could be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, 
No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit. And no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. What a powerful statement. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Now in Acts chapter 2, Luke, the author, essentially breaks it up into three different parts. In verses 1 through 13, we see his description of the Pentecost event. And it's this idea of eschatological fulfillment or end times fulfillment. And what Luke is revealing is that what God promised to do in the end, he actually has already begun now. In verses 14 through 41, we read about Peter's sermon. And it's the empowerment of the Spirit for witness. And then in verses 42 through 47, we see the effect that the moving of the Holy Spirit begins to have on the very life of the church, on God's new community. Now I want you to go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to break this up in several sections here this morning. In verse 1, Luke writes this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine couple thoughts here from these first 13 verses. The day of Pentecost was known as the Feast of Weeks amongst the Jewish people. It was the 50th day after Passover, and it was a time to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. We see this in Exodus 34. It also became a time to celebrate the anniversary of the giving of the law at Sinai. We see that in Exodus 19. And it was a time when thousands of Jews and proselytes from surrounding nations traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Now the promise that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 was that when the Holy Spirit came, once again, you would be submersed in His presence. And the idea was that this is going to be a new thing, like nothing anyone prior had ever seen before when encountering the Holy Spirit. There was going to be something very unique and different about this experience. Now, the distinctive evidence, or the initial evidence, or the common sign that we see here all throughout the book of Acts of this new thing and experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit was this unique manifestation called tongues. But I want to make a note of this. 
It is imperative that we do not elevate the distinctive evidence of speaking in tongues over the purpose and intent of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's great that we experience it and we have this beautiful prayer language where we can communicate in a way that we don't know what we're praying, but it's edifying us and building us up. But it's not just about that. The purpose above that is that we would be emboldened. We would be empowered that we may go out and live on mission in proclaiming the resurrection news of Jesus as Lord. Now, tongues is the Greek word glossolalia here that is used to describe it. Now, the Greek word glossolalia, it speaks of other languages or unknown languages that are inspired by God. The phenomenon was often very connected with a way of expressing deep emotions and bringing them to the surface in praise, in celebration, in grief, in sorrow, or in urgency to prayer. It could be earthly languages unknown to the person expressing it, or it could be completely unknown languages only known to heaven. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13. But either way, it was meant to bring glory to God and not to the sign. Now in the book of Acts, there are five references to this baptism of the Holy Spirit encounter. We see it in Acts chapter 2, Acts 4, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. It's interesting to note that three of these five directly mention tongues as a sign, and where Acts 8 alludes to it, Acts 4 simply says that when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were empowered for witness. They begin to preach the word of God with boldness. Now in each instance, what we see is that it reveals that this is an experience that is separate or subsequent to the spirit that they receive in salvation. You see, in John chapter 20, we read that Jesus breathes on the disciples and he tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. But here in Acts 2, they're having this encounter where they are being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So there's a reception of the Spirit to come and live and dwell inside of us at salvation. But there is this subsequent experience that we see in the book of Acts where this, there's this baptism evidenced by this gift of tongues. Now, a question that we have to wrestle with is this. Is this charismatic expression that we read about all through the book of Acts uh, for today, or was it only for the first century? If you remember from last week, I talked about these two opposing views, a cessationist view versus a continuationist view. Now, not to give an exhaustive list here, but many times in discussing the gifts of the Holy Spirit with many of my cessationist friends or pastors that I love so dearly, these are many of the common pushbacks that they give in support of the cessationist view. The cessationist believes that tongues or charismatic supernatural gifts were for the sole purpose of empowering the original 12 to be inspired to write the scriptures and proclaim the gospel. Many cessationists believe it was only used for gospel proclamation and mission. Often they will point to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 through 10, which talks about prophecy ceasing, and tongues will cease, and knowledge will cease when the perfect comes. And they often correlate the perfect to be the full closure of the canonization of Scripture. But whenever I push on them in those points, they often get to this point, is they point to the abuse or the misuse of the gifts in certain charismatic settings. Now, the continuationist view reads the book of Acts and sees it as being kind of left open in the sense that it has no official ending and is considered to be the ongoing testimony of the church. Now, we talked about this last week. Luke says this is the testimony of the early church 
Let this continue to be the testimony of the ongoing church in every generation. The epistles also reveal that these charismatic gifts were in operation in many believers outside of the original 12 who never contributed to the writing of the inspired scriptures. We also see in the book of Acts that not all accounts show that it was used for the sole purpose of gospel proclamation or mission. The continuationist interprets Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 there of when the perfect comes as being a reference to when Jesus, who is the Logos, returns. That there will be no need for these gifts because we will be with him face to face. Another point that must be noted in the continuationist view is how would Paul or any of the original audience had ever known of anything in regards to a later canonization of Scripture. And to the point about abuse, which is very true, that there has been a lot of abuse and misuse of the gifts throughout our movement and throughout our history, my response to that is simply this. The answer to abuse is not disuse, but rather proper use. Now, verses 8-12 through 12 reveal once again the heart of God to extend His promises to all nations and all people groups. And Luke, he goes to great length here to reveal that all the known nations of the world are represented here and all are about to hear the good news of Jesus. And this is in direct connection to the words of Jesus in Acts 1 about God blessing all nations, not just Israel, but rather through Israel which is connected to the promise given to Abraham. That promise is found in Genesis chapter 12, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, where he says, in you and through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now this promise comes almost immediately after the event at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when God temporarily confused all the languages because man had thought they could be like God by building this tower to heaven. You see, they prided themselves in their advancements and their technology, and they believed higher of themselves than they ought. In the confusion of the languages, the imagery here is that everyone is talking, but no one is understanding. There's this great production that's happening. There's this great advancement. Mankind is accomplishing so much, and God judges it and says, you know what? You're not meant to be God. I am meant to be God. And there's this division of the languages And where everyone begins to talk, but no one's understanding, no one's listening, there's great confusion. It's pretty obvious that Luke sees the events in Acts chapter 2 as being a reversal of that event in Babel. And a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I love this. In Genesis 11, there's this confusion. There's this dividing. In Acts chapter 2, the nations have now come to the earth. And now because of this supernatural miracle, this manifestation of tongues... There's this unification of one language that is happening. And though the nations have come with their unique differences and unique culture and diversity, and they're all gathered here in Jerusalem, now because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is this reunification that is happening here. Luke is so brilliant in communicating this. What was uh, what happened in Babel in Genesis 11 now is being reversed here in Acts chapter 2 where the nations were divided and no one was understanding and there was all kinds of confusion. Because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is this unifying aspect that is happening. Showing that this New Testament community isn't going to be just about those in Israel. 
but it brings in all the nations of the world with all their beauty, with all their diversity, with all their uniqueness. And the unifying component is that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of my brother or my sister in another part of the world. And we can gather on that beautiful truth. Let's read on, Acts 2, 14 through 18. Luke writes, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. See, right from the beginning, we see that what Jesus promised about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is taking its full effect. Of all the people to stand and proclaim the message on Pentecost is Peter. Peter, the one who denied the Lord three times in his deepest, darkest moment. Peter, who couldn't stand up to a young girl with boldness and confidence. Now, out of this baptism of the Holy Spirit encounter that he has had, he is now the one standing in front of thousands proclaiming the resurrection message of Jesus. And not only is Peter proclaiming the resurrection message with boldness, but he's already making profound connections with the Old Testament Scriptures, connecting it to the age of the New Covenant that they now find themselves in. I believe this is truly fascinating. I want us to skip down to verses 21 through 24. And it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone, this is Peter speaking again, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now this is another motif we will see throughout the book of Acts. We will continually see that Luke makes it clear that the early disciples say that it was sin and evil in man's hearts that killed Jesus, but God. God was sovereignly accomplishing something in the midst of this terrible evil. Peter does not negate the evil intent of mankind, nor does he attribute the evil to God. He simply reveals that God is more powerful than any evil and he cannot be thwarted by mankind's evil. He will fulfill his ultimate plan. I believe this is so important for us. We cannot even begin to understand the depth and power of God's grace until we honestly grapple with the evil of our sin. And the early apostles are clear on this. You sinned. You did this. But God, in His grace, was sovereignly accomplishing something even in the midst of your sin. Verses 37 through 41, Luke writes this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent 
which means turn the other way. Metanoia in the Greek is the idea of a, of a complete 180. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Think about that. You see, the expectation of the early disciples was that those who placed their saving faith in Jesus as Lord would not only receive redemption and forgiveness for their sins, but also they would experience the same baptism in the Holy Spirit that they had experienced. It's almost like it was one and the same, and we see this all throughout the book of Acts. What I also love here is that we see here in these few verses that Peter, one man, preaches one sermon under the anointing and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people are saved that day. I think often, if we can be honest, in the North American church, we have thousands of ministers preaching thousands of sermons, often to see very few people come to genuine saving faith. Oh, that we would be a people that preached the word of God and the gospel news under the anointing and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit again. Not just through good communication skills, not just with the advancement of technology and slides and all these beautiful tools that we love so dearly, but that when we step up to make the announcement that Jesus is Lord, we're doing it under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Let's read on, verses 42 through 47. Luke says, And they, being the Christians, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has a beautiful effect on this early gathering, on the New Testament community of believers. Number one, we see this. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. There was this realm of discipleship that was happening. Secondly, we see there was great fellowship, koinonia in the Greek. There were authentic relationships being built. We also see that there were supernatural signs and wonders. This was actually common in their midst. We see a beautiful spirit of generosity where they're sharing their possessions and their wealth one with another. This is all an effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see there's this beautiful unity. And what I love about this is that unity is not based off of uniformity. Unity is not based off of conformity. It's based off of the spirit that is in me, is in you. And though we are unique and different, we unify on that sole thing. 
We see the practice of the sacraments. The, uh, there's communion and baptisms that are happening. We see that salvations are continually happening. The people are being added to the family of God. Now, I understand that every generation has to contextualize how they do church and the different methods and modes that they use. But my hope, my prayer is that every generation will look at these defining attributes and say, if this is what Jesus intended for the first century church, these are the principles that we need to see at work in our church today. There's discipleship. There's fellowship. Signs and wonders are regular. There's a spirit of generosity. There's a beautiful unity. There's a practice of the sacraments. There's the salvations that are continually happening, and people are being added to the family of God daily. Dr. Gordon Fee says this, God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is creating a people among whom he can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. These defining characteristics are God's intent for the church in every generation. So a couple of concluding thoughts here this morning. Number one, I want to say this. Crisis precedes renewal. Mark Sayers in Australia says that often. He says, crisis precedes renewal. When you look at all the great awakenings throughout history, they usually came after a time of great crisis. I believe we are living in a moment where there is crisis in the world. There's crisis in our own nation. There's crisis in the streets. There's crisis in the economy. There's crisis in people's health. And it's so easy for us to get so focused on all that is wrong and happening in the world and miss out that maybe God is actually getting ready to do something so beautiful and profound and pouring out His Spirit to awaken His church once again. Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappear in Church, talks about this idea of what's called a renewal process. And the idea is that society and culture find themselves often going into this place of great decline. And it happens over many generations, over many years, where there's just a decline in morality, there's a decline in the church in fervor and expectancy. But eventually, within the people of God, there rises up this holy discontent, where the church begins to realize, wait a second, we've gotten so far away from being the people that God has called us to be. Something's off. Something's not right. And so out of this holy discontent, the church begins to prepare themselves. That's connected to that idea of repentance. They begin to repent and turn and say, you know what? We've got to stop going down this road, and we've got to return to being what God has intended us to be. And they begin to contend and say, God, would you come and pour out your Holy Spirit on us again? Would you come and meet us again Would you come and do such a transformative work in our generation, in our day, for your glory? And then out of that contending, there are these holy patterns. There's those principles that we read about in verses 42 through 47 that begin to take place where they're committed to discipleship, committed to fellowship. They're committed to community and generosity and supernatural signs and wonders are happening. And then out of that holy pattern, a remnant, a remnant begins to rise up and realize we need God desperately in our day. And that leads the church often into this place of turning from going one way and returning to the place of great renewal, of great revival and awakening. When I say revival, I'm not just talking about feel-good meetings. I'm not just talking about extended meetings. 
but I'm talking about a genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit that marks people for eternity. This is what we see in the book of Acts. The revival that happens there isn't just a feel-good meeting in the upper room. That is there, and that is awesome. But it leads to a change. It leads to a community walking this out in everyday life and people coming into the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I have one simple big takeaway. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Your mind's going to be blown in this moment. We need a move. Our generation needs a move of the Holy Spirit like never before. Our programs, our flashiness, our buildings, all these things that aren't bad in and of themselves, they're not going to win the hearts of the next generation. We need a fresh Acts 2 outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come where they know they've encountered something beyond themselves. They've encountered something supernatural and it marks them for eternity. And they begin to ask the questions like we see here in the book of Acts. What is this? What am I experiencing? They may not understand it. Their minds may not comprehend all of it, but they know there's something powerful happening in this moment. We need a move like never before. Let us pray. So Father, We thank you that you poured out your spirit in Acts chapter 2 like you promised and said you would do. We thank you that as we read through this chapter, we begin to see the effect that it has on the early church, but also on the early New Testament community. The Lord, we are praying here today that we need to have a fresh outpouring of your spirit like never before. We need Christians to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. That it would bring a unification to them and those that are different than them. That the church would stop being divided and confused over differences of ideologies and opinions, but we would unify on that one common theme that the same Spirit of the resurrected Lord that lives in me also lives and dwells inside my brother and my sister. We may not see eye to eye on everything, But we see eye to eye on this. The Spirit lives in us. The Spirit lives in us. And He is transforming us more into the image of Jesus. And so even right now, as people are in their living rooms or in their kitchens or uh, in their car watching this, I ask for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit to come on their lives. If they've never encountered that before, let them experience it right now. Holy Spirit, come. Pour out in a fresh way for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name in our generation. We love you and we honor you this morning. Holy Spirit, come.